Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of sex work, assault, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the United States, many children are told that the American justice system is one of the best in the world. The right to a jury of our peers and an attorney are supposed to help ensure fair, logical rulings. But in reality, this isn't always the case. Juries can get things wrong. And sometimes the people who are supposed to uphold the law sidestep it for their own gain. Lawyers might make false claims deliberately create a biased jury, or willfully misinterpret evidence. If all else fails, a case can be retooled for an appeal, even if one isn't warranted. These strategies are rare and aren't utilized by the profession as a whole, but they do happen on both sides of the courtroom. In the case of Jim Williams, Multiple retrials gave the defense and the prosecution ample opportunities to accuse the other of shady tactics. According to Williams' lawyers, the district attorney concealed evidence. According to the district attorney, Williams' lawyers paid off witnesses. As his case moved forward, these accusations eventually eclipsed the actual crime Williams was accused of, the murder of Danny Hansford. By the time the court saga finally ended, Danny seemed almost entirely forgotten. Many questions were left open, and to this day, it's hard to say what actually happened to Danny Hansford. One of these legal teams won out in the end, but did they deserve to? Hello, listeners. It's Carter. Wendy and I love to bring you stories about the many ways in which murder investigations can go horribly wrong or wonderfully right on our shows Unsolved Murders and Solved Murders. But every once in a while, we come across stories that don't fit neatly into either category. Sometimes a closed case gets blown wide open. Questions we thought had been answered get thrust back into the public eye. The ensuing controversy transforms what we thought was a simple murder story into something else entirely. We want you to join us in asking one very important question. Is this case solved or unsolved? You can find episodes of Solved Murders, Unsolved Murders, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free, exclusively on Spotify. This is our final episode on the killing of 21-year-old Danny Hansford. Last week, we followed along as Jim Williams was convicted of murder. This week, we'll explore Williams' shocking release from prison and the legal battle that his lawyers refused to put to rest. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. 
The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. On February 2nd, 1982, Jim Williams was convicted of first-degree murder and sent to a jail on the outskirts of Savannah, Georgia. But by February 4th, he'd been released on a $200,000 bond and was back in his mansion, known as Mercer House, in the center of the city. The 51-year-old antique dealer did his best to resume his normal life. For months, Williams sold antiques, traveled to galas and auctions, and checked in with friends. But some of Williams' high-society acquaintances refused to see him, and it's not hard to understand why. He was still a convicted murderer. During his trial, the state presented an overwhelming amount of evidence that he'd killed 21-year-old Danny Hansford in cold blood, and then staged the scene to make it look like self-defense. And that wasn't the only thing impacting Williams' reputation— Multiple witnesses claimed he was gay and that he routinely paid Danny for sex. These testimonies shattered Williams' public image as a traditional Southern gentleman. Even though Williams claimed his relationship with Danny was purely professional on the stand, the damage was done. Following his return to Mercer House, Williams tried to bury his troubles deep. He never outwardly acknowledged the trial. He seemed to trust that his innocence would be proven in the end. This might have been because he paid handsomely to ensure such a result. According to author John Barrent, Williams gave his attorney $50,000 worth of antiques in exchange for his expertise and spent $70,000 more on additional legal aid. Given who the lead attorney was, the price wasn't as outrageous as it seemed, Bobby Lee Cook was one of the most well-known defense attorneys in the South. He'd represented more than 200 people accused of murder by the time Williams hired him for the initial trial in 1982. Of Cook's previous clients, 90% were found innocent. Cook was an expert at finding holes, prodding until a case was overturned, and Williams was no exception. On May 14, 1982, About a year after Danny Hansford's murder and just a few months following the initial verdict, Cook's team filed an appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court. In it, Cook claimed the prosecution withheld a key piece of evidence. He accused them of conspiring with the Savannah Police Department to alter a police report. He claimed that an anonymous source from the district attorney's office sent him the original copy 
That allowed him to find a small but crucial difference from the copy he'd been given for use in trial. First, let's recall the end of those proceedings. District Attorney Spencer Lawton claimed that Williams not only staged the May 2nd, 1981 murder, but that he also framed Danny in a previous shooting at Mercer House. That shooting took place on April 3rd of the same year. Lawton had cross-examined a police officer who claimed to have found a bullet hole in the floor of the mansion in April. The officer said at the time he couldn't determine when the bullet hole was made. Lawton used this testimony as proof that Danny was wrongly accused in the April shooting. However, according to Cook, that same officer had written in the report, quote, We did find a fresh gunshot in the floor. The word fresh had not been included in the defense's trial copy. Cook claimed that if it had been, he could have countered Lawton's theory. In his eyes, the prosecution tampered with evidence to prevent him from doing just that. This might also explain why Lawson posed this theory during closing arguments. He didn't want Cook to have the chance for a rebuttal. In other words, the prosecution deliberately tipped the scales against Jim Williams. The DA's office pushed back on these allegations. Depp Kirkland, an assistant DA on the case, has since argued that the change in the police report was a standard redaction. That meant it was approved by a judge before the start of the trial. According to Kirkland, Cook was conjuring a scandal from thin air. But the state justices saw it differently. After reviewing the evidence, they overturned Williams' murder conviction and ordered a second trial. The defense now had until September 19, 1983, to figure out how to change Jim Williams' fate. Unfortunately, Bobby Lee Cook wasn't available to represent Williams in this next phase. Williams hired a new attorney, Sonny Seiler, to replace him. Seiler hit the ground running. He knew he needed to shift the defense's strategy in the upcoming trial, otherwise Williams' second chance would go to waste. He felt they should acknowledge the elephant in the room, the alleged sexual relationship between Williams and Danny Hansford. But according to John Barron's book, Williams refused. And it's not hard to see why. He was a 52-year-old man who had never publicly spoken about his sexuality. Homophobia ran rampant in Savannah. Williams was afraid of how his mother might react. Seiler spent the entire summer of 1983 trying to convince Williams to tell the court his side of the story. Finally, Williams agreed on one condition. His family would vacate the courtroom prior to his testimony. When Williams was finally called to the stand in September, he waited in silence for his mother and sister to leave the room. Once the doors closed behind them, he cleared his throat and admitted that he'd had sex with Danny a few times. He said that each of them had girlfriends of their own, implying that they were bisexual. According to him, the relationship was casual. But during cross-examination, Spencer Lawton revealed cracks in the story. He asked about the 30-year age gap between the two men, and Williams became defensive. 
Lawton then probed about the money and gifts Williams had heaped onto Danny. Again, Williams had no explanation. Rather than resting his case there, Lawton pressed on. Soon, Williams had admitted that Danny was a sex worker. This was a blow for the defense. While Siler believed honesty would paint Williams in a more favorable light, he hadn't anticipated this, but he had more up his sleeve. His other maneuver was to accuse Savannah officers of staging the crime scene. By this point, it was well known that the place had been crawling with EMTs, detectives, officers, and coroners. Even though this was standard, Siler and his team cited issues with it. Siler explained that the crime scene photos showed several items in the study were moved during the investigation. And the state's appeal ruling already indicated that the prosecution and Savannah PD had concealed evidence. So it wasn't far-fetched to think they'd tampered with the crime scene, too. Lawton insisted that officers didn't move anything until the entire scene was documented. He also pointed out that they had nothing to gain from tampering with evidence. It's unclear why Lawton and his team didn't refute these allegations outright. None of them pointed out a major issue with Siler's depiction of the crime scene photos. The pictures Siler presented were clearly taken at different times. Some depicted the study in its original state, and others were taken while detectives searched it. If Siler had looked at the frame numbers, he would have noticed this discrepancy. Regardless, he probably knew that police almost always photograph crime scenes as they're being processed. It seemed like Siler was willfully misinterpreting the evidence, and it's odd that the prosecution didn't swat down his accusations then and there. Perhaps they let them slide because they were so confident in the physical case against Jim Williams. Lawton spent most of his time on the stand, repeating what he'd already said about the 30-minute time gap and the strange positioning of Danny's body. He also emphasized the lack of gunshot residue on Danny's hands. The defense tried once again to discredit these clues. This time, they even claimed that there was a mechanical issue with the Luger found under Danny's hand. According to them, the gun was remarkably difficult to shoot. Its trigger required about 20 pounds of force to pull, about three times more than the average gun. They argued that meant it could jerk around in the shooter's hand and emit residue at odd angles. That, they claimed, was why Danny's hands were clean. Up until this point, the two legal teams seemed neck and neck. But when Lawton took the floor for his closing arguments, he picked up the Luger in question and handed it to a female assistant. Lawton asked the woman, who was much smaller than Danny, to pull the trigger. She did so with ease. The empty click punctuated the arguments, and the jury was sent to deliberate. On October 8th, 1983, after 19 days of testimony, Jim Williams was found guilty again. But as Williams was taken to jail a second time, his defense team already seemed to be working on their next appeal. After all, they'd made the impossible happen once. With enough time and money, maybe they could do it again. Coming up, 
Scandal, rumors, and new evidence reignite accusations. Hi, Parcasters. It's Greg and Vanessa from the series Serial Killers. For the past five years, we've explored hundreds of history's most notorious murderers, giving listeners an intimate look at their sordid origins and heinous crimes. If you haven't had a chance to join us before, there's no better time to dive in than right now for our Serial Killers 5th Anniversary Special. It's a four-part examination into the mythology surrounding four fearsome killers. Edmund Kemper, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Our 5th Anniversary Series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made their stories larger than life. If you've listened to the show before, we hope you enjoy. And if you haven't, this is the perfect series for any avid ParCast fan. Follow Serial Killers to hear our four-part fifth anniversary special. Listen now, free and only on Spotify. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now back to the story. 52-year-old Jim Williams was back in a Chatham County jail. And this time, his request to be released on bond was denied. Even though he'd been found guilty of murdering Danny Hansford twice, Williams maintained his innocence. And on Halloween of 1983, his lawyers filed a motion for yet another trial— Only a few weeks had passed since his second conviction. Generally, there are two possible routes to securing a second, or in this case, third trial. An attorney can find an error in the previous case, or they can reveal new evidence that could change the outcome. If these strategies fail and the judge denies the motion, the attorney can appeal the decision and take the case to the state Supreme Court. Williams' defense team had already highlighted issues with previous rulings, so this time they scoured Savannah for new information on the case. Or at least, they said they did. In the months after the motion was filed, Williams' lawyer, Sonny Seiler, submitted multiple affidavits from brand new witnesses. Many of them were Danny Hansford's acquaintances or fellow sex workers. Oddly enough, every single one of them said the same thing. Danny wanted to kill Williams, and that he spent the final weeks of his life actively plotting the murder. It was a shocking possibility. At first, it seemed to bolster Williams' claims of innocence. Maybe he really was just defending himself from an attempt on his life. But everything Williams had said up to this point depicted Danny as a raging madman. It was odd that none of these witnesses came forward before the spring of 1984, and that their testimonies matched up so well, almost three years after the fact. According to Depp Kirkland's book, Lawyer Games, this pile of affidavits also ended up on D.A. Lawton's desk. 
Lawton found the testimonies more than suspicious. In fact, he believed they were completely fake. He contacted the Georgia Bureau of Investigations and sent a special agent to look into these alleged witnesses. Lo and behold, one of them admitted he'd signed the affidavit because he owed Sonny Siler a favor. While he had chatted with Danny at a party once, he never heard him say anything about killing Jim Williams. Another said he barely knew Danny, but that a member of Siler's team offered him $5,000 to give a false statement. According to him, at least one of the witnesses from the second trial had been paid off too. Lawton brought these claims before the judge. Naturally, the defense contested, but the judge didn't seem to buy their explanations and denied the motion for a new trial in August of 1984. The defense appealed, which brought Siler before the state Supreme Court sometime in June 1985. But he didn't bring in any of these so-called new evidence. Those witnesses were never heard from again. Instead, Siler seemed to take the safer path and followed in Bobby Lee Cook's footsteps. He cited errors in the second trial. The attorney had three major complaints. One, there wasn't enough circumstantial evidence to convict Jim Williams. Two, the prosecution shouldn't have brought in Savannah officers as expert witnesses. And three, Spencer Lawton's demonstration with the pistol came too late in the trial and didn't give the defense enough time to respond. In the end, three of the justices voted to keep Williams in jail and maintain the conviction, but four voted to throw it out. The defense had won by a hair yet again. 55-year-old Jim Williams could go back to Mercer House, and another trial was on the horizon. This one was scheduled for May 19, 1987. But it should be noted that the Supreme Court's ruling might not have been completely ethical. According to Kirkland's book, there were rumors in the local legal community that Jim Williams retained a powerful Atlanta-based law firm during the appeal. One of the senior partners there was a former Georgia governor who had close ties with multiple members of the state Supreme Court. An attorney from Savannah later signed an affidavit. It stated that a member of Williams' defense team told him the politician was being paid to subtly pressure justices to rule in Williams' favor. The politician denied this. However, these rumors weren't publicized until years after the fact. So the third trial opened in May of 1987. And the defense retooled their argument again. They aimed to discredit the gunshot residue claims once and for all. Recall that in the first trial, a representative from the state crime lab said Danny didn't have any gunshot residue particles on his hands. He also claimed the Luger Danny allegedly fired was known to produce more of these particles than an average firearm. Taken together, these two results indicated a likelihood that Danny didn't shoot the gun at all. But there was a catch. The defense knew Danny's hands were swabbed during the autopsy, almost 12 hours after he died. If his hands were left uncovered between the time of his death and the time of the autopsy, they speculated that the residue could have simply rubbed off. 
So Seiler argued that for the test results to be reliable, there had to be proof that Danny's hands were bagged at the crime scene. An SPD detective had repeatedly testified that he covered Danny's hands with paper bags before loading him into the ambulance. But in the defense's hunt for new evidence before the trial, they'd gone back to the hospital to re-examine the autopsy results. Oddly enough, the hospital's copy had an extra page added to it, an ER admission form. On the form, a nurse had written, quote, hands bagged bilaterally in emergency department. Seiler called this same nurse as his first witness, and he posed the obvious question, had Danny come in with bags already on his hands? The nurse replied, he did not. She was the one who bagged them after he arrived. That meant that they were unprotected during the entire ambulance ride. And that wasn't all. The nurse also said she'd used plastic bags. This was even better for the defense. According to one of their expert witnesses, plastic bags are never used in gunshot residue tests because they can create condensation and static electricity. Both of these can pull particles away from the hands and effectively remove any residue. The ER nurse had single-handedly ruined one of the strongest pieces of evidence against Jim Williams. She also cast more overall doubt onto the Savannah Police Department. But even then, there's reason to doubt her story. By this point, rumors were circulating about the defense buying testimony. And the one piece of hard evidence, the note on the admission form, could be interpreted in two different ways. Hands bagged bilaterally could mean that someone in the emergency department did the bagging. But it could also mean that the hands were already in bags when Danny arrived. And there's no way to confirm what kind of bags were actually on his hands. The coroner followed standard procedure and took photos during the autopsy. These types of pictures are usually kept on file by multiple agencies, including the police department, the court, and the State Bureau of Investigations. But according to Depp Kirkland, Danny's autopsy photos went missing from every single collection. The prosecution wasn't able to provide these rebuttals at the time, though. Instead, D.A. Lawton used his closing statement to reiterate that it didn't matter if the test results were compromised. There was still a substantial amount of physical evidence against Jim Williams. And with that, a jury was sent to deliberate for the third time. By the afternoon of the next day, they'd almost reached a decision to convict. But one woman held out for Williams' innocence. After another day... They were still deadlocked. The judge implored them to come to a unanimous decision as soon as possible. Then he sent them home. Many seemed to think they would announce a verdict the next day. But when the jurors filed back in on the morning of June 9th, the court was in for a surprise. It turned out that the lone holdout contacted a paramedic the night before and asked him very specific questions about the case. In this and every criminal case, jurors aren't allowed to seek outside information about the trial they're participating in. 
Each juror swore not to do this prior to the start of the proceedings. But this woman violated her oath. After three weeks in court, the judge had no choice but to declare a mistrial. If this error hadn't occurred, Jim Williams probably would have been convicted of first-degree murder for the third time. Instead, he got an unprecedented fourth chance to defend himself in court. And this time around, he'd do it very differently. Coming up, Jim Williams' final shot at freedom. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now back to the story. After the mistrial in 1987, the Jim Williams case hung in limbo for almost two years. His legal team seemed to sense that they'd narrowly dodged another guilty verdict. They'd now been beaten twice, almost three times, by Lawton and his team. If all the factors remain the same, they'd likely lose again. So they did their best to change as many aspects of their argument as possible. First, they filed a motion to remove Lawton from the case. They said he'd been hiding evidence again, specifically the hospital form. This motion was thrown out almost immediately. As it turns out, admission forms are almost never shared with legal teams. In October of 1987, the DA shot back and tried to get Siler off the case for negligence and unethical conduct. While we don't know the exact contents of this complaint, Lawton probably focused on the allegations that Siler paid for testimony, but this motion was also denied. Meanwhile, Jim Williams' story attracted more publicity than ever. Tourists showed up outside of Mercer House snapping photos of the imposing brick facade. In the wake of all of this attention, Siler petitioned the court to move the trial out of Savannah in the spring of 1989. The story had saturated local newspapers for about eight years at this point. It would be almost impossible to find an unbiased jury. The Superior Court agreed to the change of venue, and the trial was moved about 130 miles away to Augusta, Georgia. It opened there on May 1, 1989. Unfortunately, there's not much information available about this trial. An official transcript was never created. In writing his book, Lawyer Games, Depp Kirkland attempted to get the remaining notes from a court reporting company that had worked on the case, but they'd shredded all of their documents from the 1980s. There are a few things that can be confirmed, though. We know that after a Superior Court judge agreed to move the trial, he also barred the prosecution from using certain types of testimony. Remember that after the second trial, the Georgia Supreme Court said that the prosecution couldn't use experts, like the Savannah Police Department detectives, to interpret the evidence for the jury. Going into the 1989 trial, the judge interpreted this ruling more strictly, 
Essentially, he said that the prosecution's experts couldn't say anything about the evidence. These restrictions completely hobbled the prosecution's case. But because the defense didn't rely on expert witnesses, their case was hardly impacted by the new rules. Before the trial even started, the playing field seemed uneven. According to John Barrent, Sonny Seiler harped on the theory that the police were incompetent or even conspiring to convict Williams. Spencer Lawton was so hamstrung by the new rules that he could hardly fight back. On May 12th, 11 days in, the jury went into deliberations. They took only 15 minutes to come to a decision. Not guilty. After eight years of relentless back and forth, the decision rang a bit hollow. The concluding trial latched onto legal issues from the previous ones and seemed completely removed from the crime itself. So, let's go back to the basic facts of the case. We know Jim Williams shot Danny Hansford on May 3, 1981. He said that himself. The real question is, under what circumstances? The trial process included countless versions and perspectives on the shooting, but all of them seemed to fall into one of three basic scenarios. Option one, William shot Danny to protect himself. There are a few pieces of evidence that could line up with this. For example, Danny was known to be a loose cannon, and if the April incident is taken at face value, it seems like he wouldn't hesitate to pick up a gun and fire. But this scenario required Danny to shoot first, and that's difficult to prove. The gun under his hand didn't have any blood on it, even though his hand was thoroughly coated. And even if there were inconsistencies in the gunshot residue test, the results seemed to indicate that he didn't shoot at all. The second option is the one favored by the prosecution, that Danny's murder was premeditated and set up to look like self-defense. It seems clear that someone messed with the crime scene. The 30 minutes between Danny's death and William's phone call to the police remain unaccounted for. He could have used this time to fake Danny's gunshots and place the gun under his hand. The scraps of paper found on top of William's gun might support this theory. Williams also seemed to have a motive for murdering Danny. He later confirmed that they were in a sexual relationship and another witness claimed he was jealous of Danny's girlfriend. Several people said that tension between the two men was ratcheting up in the weeks leading to the shooting. Any number of things could have caused the antique dealer to snap. This theory seems plausible except for the premeditation aspect. The prosecution insisted that Williams was planning to kill Danny for weeks, but they only had one piece of evidence for this, which was the bullet hole from April. Needless to say, it was pretty flimsy. The case could have ended after one trial if the prosecution just left this theory out. But their insistence on it tipped a domino, leading to a cascade of appeals. Then there's the third possible scenario, which exists somewhere between the first two. It's possible that Williams did act in self-defense. After firing, Williams might have realized that Danny was seriously injured, circled the desk, 
then put two more shots into him to kill him off completely. When he realized what he'd done, he panicked. So he potentially manipulated the scene in the way the prosecution described. In other words, it's possible that the killing wasn't entirely planned, nor was it solely an act of self-defense. This third theory seems to fit the evidence best. But as the story was rehashed by numerous lawyers, its substance was lost. This, too, might have been intended. Williams hired the best in the business and paid them handsomely. There are plenty of allegations that his lawyers engaged in foul play, though they can't be confirmed. At the very least, Williams was wealthy enough to pay for as many appeals as it took for the case against him to fall apart. Either way, the fact is that Jim Williams emerged victorious, and many in Savannah rallied around him. He was nearly 60, and it seemed like his life was beginning anew. Seven months after the trial concluded, he threw his first Christmas party in years. Hundreds of guests circulated through Mercer House and marveled at his glittering collection of antiques. It was smaller than the last time they'd seen it. Williams had been forced to sell off many of the pieces to cover his legal fees, which totaled around a million dollars. But he'd kept some of his favorites. These included a full set of dishes from the Qing dynasty, two enormous tapestries from 18th century Brussels, and the dagger that was allegedly used to kill Rasputin. Williams sailed around the party in tip-top spirits. He was right back where he belonged no longer a social pariah or a convicted murderer. But as his guests trickled out of the house early the next morning, they couldn't have known that this triumphant return to form would be his last. About three weeks after the Christmas party, on January 14, 1990, Jim Williams was found dead. It looked like he'd collapsed in the middle of the night, right outside his study. According to the medical examiner, there was no foul play involved. Williams had a heart attack and may have been suffering from pneumonia. After he died, his younger sister took ownership of Mercer House. She turned it into a museum, which is still open and operating to this day. In 1994, the case received national attention when John Barrett released his book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Barrett caught wind of the story in 1982, while the defense was working on their first appeal. He got first-hand access to Williams throughout the trial process. The book was a surprise hit and spent more than four years on the New York Times bestseller list. It caused tourists to surge into Savannah, eager to walk through Mercer House and picnic near Danny Hansford's grave. It was marketed as nonfiction, but the author's friendly relationship with Jim Williams might have skewed his perspective. People like Spencer Lawton have repeatedly stated that many key details were left out of the text. But even though Barrett is sympathetic toward Williams, the book never quite comes to a conclusion about the events of May 3, 1981. Perhaps that illustrates the thorniness of Danny Hansford's case, It's technically solved and has been from the beginning. Everyone knows who pulled the trigger, and after 10 years in court, 
Everyone knows the official verdict. But the questions about what motivated that shooting and what actually happened that night seem unsolvable. Thanks again for tuning into our solved or unsolved crossover special. We'll be back next week with new episodes. For more information on the death of Danny Hansford, amongst the many sources we used, we found two books extremely helpful to our research. These were Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Barrent and Lawyer Games, After Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by Depp Kirkland. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders, Unsolved Murders, and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Yeah, we live till next time. Until then, stay safe. Unsolved Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unsolved Murders is written by Kylie Harrington, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Tara Wells, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Freddie Beckley. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy.